Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. We thank Him for another beautiful day. As I said earlier, you know, the Word of God says His mercies are new every day. So what do we have today? We have a new day, and His mercies are new for us again today. So praise Him, all you saints, and and fall in love with Him because you know what? He's good and His mercy endures forever. So praise be to God. Well, if you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, we're going to open up uh, our message with a word of prayer today and we'll get to it. And so if you guys want to bow your heads and just let's ask the Lord to bless our service and prepare our hearts. Lord, we thank You Lord, for bringing us all here today, Lord. We thank You, Lord, for Lord all the ways in which You're you use those that make themselves available to you, Lord. I thank you, Lord God, that you're sending your word out to all the world with Gospel Saving Church, Lord. I thank you that you are uh, just glorifying yourself in us, Lord. Thank you for all the mighty things that you're doing, Lord, with Gospel Saving Church, Lord. I thank you for all the folks that Listen along every week, Lord, all the people that are blessed by what they hear and all the people that are able to come into my home every Sunday morning for church here in McKinney, Lord. So thankful, Lord, for every single soul, Lord God, that you're touching, Lord, through this ministry. We ask that you bless this message today, Lord God, and we thank you for all that you do for us and all that you've done for us. We thank you, we praise you, and we love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you guys want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to be in verses 23 through 33. We're going to study 10 verses today. Again, Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. And I'll read it right after my thoughts from last week's message. Remember, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Two weeks ago in our sermon, the parable of the wedding feast, we had just many different ideas, if you remember back. Lots of different ideas. I'm not going to cover them over again, but we had many ideas. Well, in last week's message, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's, we really only had a couple ideas. But that message did have one main idea that did what? Remember, if you remember correctly, I told you last week, it opened up the message, and it closed the same message, which is something that I really wasn't planning on doing. If you remember correctly, that idea that I spoke about was relationship with God. Both trusting, resting in Him totally and completely with all your life and with all your heart. And I will add today, and, and you know, to add to what I said, no matter what kind of things you have going on in your life, it's important because relationship, as I've said before, and I'll say again, doesn't really work without trust. And if we're not going to trust Him, moment by moment, day by day by day, we're showing Him that we're not trusting Him and we really are struggling to have a relationship. So that's important. Is key is trust and rest in Him. And the other aspect of relationship is true fellowship with Him talking to and listening to him by his word and, and spiritually, you know, listening for God's still small voice. And of course, in his word, which is the number one way that we hear God through his word, the Holy Bible. But relationship, remember, was that main idea. Well, you might think, wouldn't the God of all creation want a little more from us than just relationship? I mean, after all, he is the king of the universe, right? But if you really dissect relationship, and you really look at relationship in depth, you see that there's more to relationship than just a word. It really covers everything that God could want from you. If you have a relationship with somebody, someone, you are careful not to do the things that they don't like. You know, if you love somebody, that's when you have a relationship with somebody and you love them, and you know that they don't like it when you do X, Y, Z, but you do X, Y, Z all the time, you know they don't like that, and if you do that, you're not really showing them love because you're doing something that they hate, okay? 
So you do these, you, you're careful not to do the things they don't like because you love them. If you have a relationship with someone, you say nice things to them. You do nice things for them. Why? Again, because you love them. If you have a relationship with somebody, you spend time with that person. You get to know them more because you love them. Again, and, and in essence, if you look at all these different things of relationship and love, in essence, if you have a relationship with someone, you live your life, the ways of your life, the words that you speak in your life, you live your life like you love the person that you have a relationship with. You live like you love them. I want you to keep these things in mind as I just now hit the physical, and we all can see those things in a physical world, in our physical relationships with our wives or our husbands or our, you know, our boyfriends or our girlfriends or our children. You know, we see those things that are true. But I want you to keep those things in mind because they carry over into the spiritual if you say that you have a relationship with God. Many in our world today say that they have a relationship with God, or, or they wouldn't use that word necessarily, but they would say, oh, I, I know who Jesus is. Yes, oh yes, I, I love God. And if you say you love someone, then you're going to have a relationship with them because love and relationship are synonymous. But you see, their lives really don't emulate that same love that they say that they have for God. They don't live their lives like they love Him. They don't care how much sin is in their lives, for instance. That's just one thing. Because they say, well, God loves me, you know, and I know God loves me, so, you know, it doesn't really matter how much I sin. Yet, the Bible says, God says in His Word, I hate sin. They don't care what kind of vulgar speech comes out of their mouths because they, you know, yet the Bible says that let no unclean thing proceed from your mouth. Spending time, you know, with God and learning his ways are not important to them. Yet, what did I just say, or, or I'll say it now, a relationship is built with somebody or someone with time spent with them and communication with them. They don't even believe that his word, the Bible, is accurate and perfect. And so how can you have respect for you know, the word of God when you don't even believe it's true? Yet the Bible says of itself that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So in a sense, by saying we don't think it's accurate, you're calling God a liar. Well, how can you have a relationship with someone if you do the things that they hate if you act the ways that they hate, if you don't spend time with them, you don't talk to them, you don't have a relationship with them, you don't communicate with them, you're not learning about them, you're not listening to them, and you're not talking to them. It's impossible. Because they pretty much overall, they don't just simply don't, in essence, live their lives like they love God or Christ, yet they say they do with their lips. Relationship, as I already said, involves love. And when you love someone, your actions and your words are examples of that love. That's why, remember, Jesus said that all the law and the prophets hang on two main things. Remember what they are? Love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul sure sounds like devotion and relationship. Devoted relationship. And then loving your neighbor as yourself, that's just something God wants us to do because how can we love someone that we see in the How can we hate someone that we see in the physical but yet love God who is invisible? James talks about that. So, my words to you today, my words to anybody that will ever listen to this message even myself and everybody, if you say that you love God and Christ, please live for them like you love them because that's real relationship. We must always be careful not to take God you know, for granted and just not live for Him like we love Him because He's real, more real than us. He's always been. He created us. We have not always been. We always will be, but where will we be? Will we spend eternity in heaven with him forever? 
Or will we spend eternity in hell away from him because we choose not to live like we love him? All right. All right. Well, let's move forward to today's message. Praise be to God. Our title of today's message is God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And let's read Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. The Bible says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken. Or the word there for mistaken also means deceived. You are mistaken or deceived, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teachings. So I don't know if you caught it, right there in verse 23, we read about how Jesus is having a very difficult and busy day dealing with being attacked. I don't know if you caught it. First, remember, a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees come to test him. Then we got the Pharisees' disciples come and test him. Then, right here, did you see it in verses 23 through 28? Now we have the Sadducees coming to attack him. The same day, notice we start out verse 23, the same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, come to ask him something. Now, I say here, and I'm going to show you as we move on, they are completely attacking him. You may have seen this always if you've read this passage of scripture over. All this is just an inquiry. But I will say that this is an attack and not just an inquiry. You see, well, for starters, if you don't believe in a resurrection, like the Bible clearly says here, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection, why would you come and ask somebody a question about the resurrection that you don't believe in? I mean, you've already got your mind set. I don't believe in this resurrection. Then you come and you ask a teacher, which hardly no, which a whole bunch of religious leaders already don't like. You ask him a question about a resurrection that you do not believe in. See, their minds were made up on the issue. They weren't asking him if it was right. They were asking him kind of a, you know, kind of like the disciples of the Pharisees. They were kind of trying to trick him again. You know, if you look throughout Scripture, so sad, Jesus was constantly being attacked. Scripture shows us that he was getting it from all angles. We got the Pharisees that came to always attack him. We got the disciples of the Pharisees that came to attack him. Now we got the Sadducees. We see in Scripture that the lawyers attacked him. And then we even have in the book of John, very prevalent, his own family was saying things against him to attack him. Many in his day, if you look throughout all scripture and the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were taking cheap shots at him often. My heart, I don't know if your heart, my heart goes out to Christ, you see, in a big way. He did nothing to hurt anybody. He did nothing to harm anybody. His main goal, his main objective in his ministry was to lead people into a relationship with God in a sincere way, yet for all that he did, people did nothing but attack him 
and tempt him and test him. What a shame. If your heart didn't go out to Jesus, I hope it does now. Because that even makes his sacrifice for you and me on the cross even that much more. All the more heartbreaking. For not only did he live his life for us and be scorned, but he also died for us and was scorned even at his death. How sad. Anyway, in case you're wondering who the Sadducees were, because we got these now, we got our, our scene switches. It's the same day, but we've got a new group of people that now come to attack him uh, you know, uh, yet again. And they call themselves the Sadducees. Well, who were they? In Jesus' day, up to around 70 AD, they were a major religious sect of Judaism. Okay? They considered themselves the priests or the aristocrats. Other sects of Judaism also included the Pharisees, or you may have heard of them, the Essenes. You don't hear so much about them, and we don't really ever hear about them in the Bible, but we read about the Pharisees and the Sadducees a lot. They all read the same Bible, but they all had their different opinions on how it was, go- it was supposed to be interpreted, of course. And of course, their differences of interpretation of the Bible caused them to have a divide. And you would look and say, wow, that sounds familiar. Yeah, it does, because it's the same as the different groups of Christians today. In Christianity today, we have the Baptists, we have the Methodists, we have the Lutheran, we have the non-denominational, we have Catholics, and you know, you could go on, there's even more, but those for just example. And each sect of Christianity has one or more differences of, of opinion of the Bible that, that have caused people to divide into, into these different groups. And believe it or not, We had that in Judaism in Jesus' day. We got that in Christianity today. And what do we see? We also see it if you look at other religions. If you look at the Jehovah Witnesses, or if you look at the Mormons, or if you look at Islam, or you look at Hinduism, uh, for instance, all these different religions also have different, you know, people that study their religion, and they see different things in their scripture. And instead of people all just coming along and saying, you know, let's all agree to disagree. I believe scripture says this. I believe scripture says that. They don't, they divide. And these different little sects, we'll call them, S-E-T-S, sects, that uh, they just cause them to divide, and they go in these different sects, and then they just, you know, their religion becomes divided. And that happens throughout all religions still to this day. So the Sadducees here were simply a group of Jews that followed Judaism with their own spin on Scripture. And what did our text just tell us? Our text just told us that they did not believe in a resurrection or they didn't believe in what you'd call afterlife. They just thought once people died, they just died and were buried and that was it. But yet they believed in God. I I, I don't get it, but they said literally they believed that because they did not read it in the Torah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'm sorry, (laughs) Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that they since they didn't read about it, they, it wasn't real. So they never read about an afterlife or a resurrection, so they, they claimed it wasn't real. So let's look at their attack against Jesus by studying their statement to him first, and then we'll look at their question. Let's read over verse 24 again, and let's look at the statement that they make to him. They said in verse 24, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies, having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. What were they saying? Was this biblical? Yes. Book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, verse 5. God tells Moses, same thing. If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as his wife, and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. In case you don't know why God did this, or why God said to do this, it was to keep the man's name alive. To God, lineages were very important. And if a man, a brother, had a name and a last name and a a life with, with a family, God wanted that man's family to still continue to go on. And by having that wife go marry that, you know, man's brother, that kept that man's name alive in Israel. That man had his own inheritance from God. That one man, that one brother, had his own land from God. God divided land and gave land to families. Okay, And that man had his own land from God, an inheritance from God. And God did not want that man's heritage to die. 
So that's where they get their kind of statement from. They got it from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25, 5. That, and that's why God told them to do this. So let's look at their question to test him, verses 25 through 28. Let's look at it again. Let's talk about what he's saying. So then they say after their statement, Now there was with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise the second also, and the third even to the seventh. Last of all the women died also. Therefore in the resurrection, again which they didn't believe in, Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. You know, this question's kind of funny. We talked about this in a Bible time that we had some time ago. Uh, if, if this really happened, I would be really shocked. I, I just believe that, you know, they made up this story because I highly doubt that there was really seven brothers. And for, okay, so for... One brother to pass his wife to another brother, that other brother couldn't be married. Okay, so if you had seven brothers, the what are the odds that all these seven brothers were not going to have their own wives? Okay, well, this is just a, a kind of a story that they were making up to, to tell Jesus. There's no root of truth here. That's just kind of like how Jesus taught in parables. These guys were kind of trying to teach in parables to Jesus. They were kind of trying to give him a picturesque story of their, of their idea. They, they, remember, they gave this in premise of, we don't believe in the resurrection. And then so they give this question, almost an impossible, uh, in real life, this would almost impossibly never happen. So they give him this impossibly to never happen, this kind of question. We have seven brothers, you know, this probably could never happen. I don't believe, again, this is a serious inquiry. If it was a serious inquiry, I could see this as a good question instead of a test. But again, since they had a mindset of, we don't believe in the resurrection and afterlife, I see this as a test. So why come and attack Jesus? Why? Well, I believe they're trying to give him a question that they thought he couldn't answer so that they could make him look stupid in spiritual matters. I mean, after all... We just had the disciples of the Pharisees come and test them with a question on, you know, the taxes to Caesar. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And, you know, remember they came along with Herodians so that they could catch him in his words so that they could try to trap him. Well, again, you don't come to somebody and ask them a stupid kind of question like this when you have a mindset if you're not trying to trick somebody, if you're not trying to trap somebody. So what we really see is, how do I know that, you know, I have more... Proof that I would say that this is correct, that they really were trying to trap him and test him more than just to say it. Because if we look at the way Jesus answers them, does Jesus answer them like they're sincerely seeking the truth? Look at verse 29. Jesus answered and said to them, You are deceived, or you are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Absolutely capital N-O. He answers them like they're testing him and like they're attacking him. Remember, God scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. And how you say was his answer scornful? I have a good answer for that. You may see his answer, well, you know, Pastor Ed, I could see he really didn't answer them that harshly, did he? Yes. We have to look back to history and to who these guys really were and to what they believed and what level they had in life and where they were to see the truth on that. Historical knowledge of these guys tells us that they considered themselves elitists. Now, if you think you're an elite, and they're right there, you think, I know it all. I'm the elite. Who wanted to maintain the priestly caste. And also they took, it's an important thing to remember, to note here, they took all scripture of the Bible, literally, word for word. They took a a literal interpretation of their scripture. But this is the biggest thing that shows me that Jesus answered them scornfully back because he believed that they were testing him and tempting him. The Pharisees served in the great Sanhedrin along with the Sadducees. See, this was a kind of Jewish Supreme Court that made up 71 members whose responsibility was, listen to this, 
interpret civil and religious laws. Now, think about this. To be able to interpret civil and religious laws, you have to know your material super well. If you're a judge, if you're a police officer, if you're someone that has to be a distributor of the law or a judge of the law, you've got to know the law. You've got to know your material, which is the law, super, super, super well. Okay? This material that they said we know super well would be the Jewish scripture. It was the same Jewish scripture that they interpreted the civil and religious laws to the people probably daily. Now think of this. Jesus just told these people who thought they were the elites, who translated and interpreted these religious and spiritual laws daily, that they didn't understand the scripture. And you could throw in there, nor the power of God. For Jesus to tell these guys that they didn't know those same Jewish scriptures that they interpreted in this great Sanhedrin was a huge slap in the face to them. They would have seen this statement as completely and totally disrespectful. So you could see there how Jesus' statement, you don't know the scriptures. And they would be thinking, we teach these scriptures all the time. We are the judges of these scriptures. We interpret those scriptures to people. And he just said, we don't know the scriptures, nor the power of God. We know God. We know those scriptures. I almost bet you that that was what they were thinking in their mind when Jesus said what he just said. But Jesus doesn't just stop there with his statement to them with this slap in the face. He has something to tell them about the afterlife. Look at verse 30. He goes on to say, For in the resurrection they neither marry, talking about people, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. So he tells these guys, remember, who don't even believe in an afterlife at all, That when people die, we become like the angels of God in heaven. Now, important note here, breaking off of Jesus' aggressiveness toward the Sadducees here, I have to make this note because the whole world has gone crazy with this idea. I have no idea where this came from. But many people in our world have this idea that people become angels when we die. Again, I don't know where people got this idea from. I don't know where it stemmed from. But people believe people become angels when we die. There's all kinds of movies, angels in the outfield, yada, 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 angels this, angels that, where people die and then they go become become angels. Nowhere in the Bible does does it say, does God say people become angels when they die? What did Jesus just say there in verse 30? He said in verse 30, People are not given in marriage or marry, but they become like the angels of God in heaven. Well, to become like an angel does not mean that you're becoming an angel, people. We become like the angels. Jesus is just saying that we, when we die, we get a new spiritual body. And we become and we have a spiritual body like the angels of God. Biblically, we know that people get new a new type of spiritual body in the resurrection. In the resurrection, remember when Jesus was resurrected. He, he died. He went to, you know, to hell or Abraham's bosom to lead the people that were captives, cap, you know, to let them out of captivity. And when he resurrected, he had a brand new body that nobody recognized right away when they first saw him. He kept his holes in his hands, but he kind of kept them hidden. But when he showed back up, when he would you say he was the first of the dead, the first resurrected from the dead, as I think the book of Hebrews talks about, nobody kind of recognized him. He was had a new body. He had a new, not like the physical body that we live in now, this sin-filled body that's dying, but he got this new spiritual type of body that was kind of physical, but it was yet without sin. So we know biblically we have this new body, 
but we certainly don't get this fleshly, sinful, dying one back, but we get a new one. But just please note, we do not become angels. Angels are God's created being. People are like children of God. Angels are just like God's servants, so keep that in mind. So now back to the Sadducees here. Of course we can make the conclusion, after reading what Jesus just said to them, that these guys' prideful religious position in Judaism and Judaism, that they aren't buying what he's telling them. Really? That I could kind of almost read their mind. Really, we become like angels. He, remember, he just told these guys who don't believe in an afterlife that we're going to become like the angels of God in heaven. They're like, yeah, okay, yeah, you know, whatever, Jesus, whatever. Did Jesus see this? Did Jesus see the fact that he saw that they weren't believing this? Of course he does. Look at verses 31 and 32. Look, let's look at what he does here. But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Notice he said what was spoken to you by God. Notice he just didn't say what was written. Because guess what? The scriptures are written to us. The people in the land of the flesh. God wrote the scriptures for us so that we could have them in order to get to heaven or make a choice for God. The scriptures aren't just written down for nothing. They're written for us so that we could read them, so that we could get to know God. Again, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? Verse 32, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. For God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. He quotes for them God's words he spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus 3.6. What was Jesus just saying? Did you notice that he just said when God spoke to Moses, God said, God is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God spoke to Moses of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they were in the first person. He did not speak of them as if they were dead. He spoke of them as if they were like right here in the room with me. Hey, I'm the son of this person and this person, and they're sitting right here with me. This is the way God referred to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yet, physically in the flesh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all dead anywhere from 350 to 600 years in the flesh. They were alive to God, for God is the God of the living and not the dead. But they were dead in the flesh 350 to 600 years. Jesus just showed them in their own scriptures, he proved to them that there was a resurrection and that there was an afterlife. The reason they didn't believe in afterlife was because they thought it was not mentioned literally in the Torah. Remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. First five books of the Jewish Bible. First five books of the Christian Bible. Well, here, Jesus just shows them that the resurrection, that a real resurrection and a real literal afterlife was actually, literally mentioned in the Torah. I guess they must have missed that small little detail, right? Ha, ha, ha. Come on, guys. Really? They interpreted these books all the time. Of course they missed it. They had a predetermined notion. They had an eisegesis look at it. They interpreted what they wanted out of the scriptures. They didn't look to the scriptures and interpret them from what the scriptures said. So I don't know if you realize this, but Jesus just beat them. At their own game. They believed in a literal interpretation of the Bible. And Jesus uses a literal interpretation of their same Bible to show them they were wrong to believe that there was no resurrection and no afterlife. Wow. He completely and utterly shows these guys that they were wrong by the literal interpretation of the book that they studied and interpreted it to others daily. Jesus was a master at what he did. Jesus always gave the perfect answer. Every single question that he was ever asked, he gave the perfect answer to answer everybody's question. 
Of course. What would we expect now? We know him today, that he was God. They knew it then. They rejected it. It doesn't matter. It is what it is. But look at the answers that he gave. Perfect and divine. What is their response here to Jesus showing them that they were wrong? I mean, he just showed them they were wrong. Showed them from their scriptures, literally, as they believed, literally, that their words didn't, nowhere in the Torah did the Bible say that there was an afterlife. But he literally showed them that they were wrong from their literal scriptures. It must have been to repent, right? It must have been. I mean, after all, he showed them, proved them wrong, almost kind of like forearm to the face. I showed you you're wrong. What's your next step? How did they react? Look at verse 33. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Wait a minute. We don't have their reaction here. We have the multitudes reaction. Well, remember, a lot of places that Jesus went, there were multitudes everywhere where he went, right? Wherever Jesus went, multitudes followed him. This would be no different. We see the multitudes here. At least we know by the multitudes that heard this conversation, that they agree with Jesus and not the Sadducees, because they were like astonished. Wow, that's awesome. These guys didn't think there was, man, this guy, man, well, he just proved them that they were wrong, that he, they were wrong. But did you catch the funny thing that Jesus did here? Jesus does something kind of funny that God just showed me kind of, this was just the other day I was writing this section for the sermon. And God showed me something funny that Jesus did here. The Sadducees, I believe, came to Jesus wanting to make him look dumb in spiritual matters. I had referenced that earlier. And look at what happened. They ended up making themselves look stupid. Their plan backfired. They wanted to make Jesus look like the idiot. What happened? They made themselves look like idiots because there were a multitude of people around. Jesus caught them. Jesus proved them they were wrong. And the people were astonished. Wow! And guess what? The Sadducees had mud in their eyes. Wow. I just think that that's funny. So we have the response to Jesus' reply from the multitudes around him. But how did the Sadducees reply? How did the Sadducees respond? Unfortunately, we don't get their reply here. But thanks be to God, Luke in his gospel records them in Luke 20, 39 and 40. I'm going to read them. Let's look at what happens to them. Let's look at what they do. Then some of the scribes answered and said, Teacher, you have spoken well, but after that, they, there's the Sadducees now, they dared not question him anymore. We see here in Luke's gospel that along with the multitudes, along with the Sadducees, we see another class of people that practiced Judaism. They were called the scribes. They were also the ones that were involved in explaining the Torah to the people along with its its precepts distinctly and to give a sense as Nehemiah tells us in his uh, book in uh, chapter 8, Nehemiah 8. Nehemiah is an old, old man of God that lived in the Old Testament. And these scribes were from his day. Not obviously the same people, but they were a class of Jews that interpreted also the Bible to people and the precepts and the laws and so on and so forth. Okay, And even they, we see here, are given the thumbs up to Jesus for exactly what he said with the burning bush, burning bush passage. But did you catch again what the scribes were, what happened to the Sadducees? But they dared not question him anymore. Wow. So we would say today that Jesus shut their mouths permanently. What they did was to remain silent permanently. But did you catch there what they didn't do? I mean, Jesus caught them, proved them wrong, showed them they were wrong, from their literal scriptures, which they interpreted literally. Jesus gives them the literal interpretation, proves them wrong. They shut their mouths. Wow, it's, it, forget it, guys. He's a lost cause. That's, we're done. He's just, wow. We can't, he's right. We're wrong. But what did they not do? They didn't repent. They didn't turn to him. 
They didn't realize they were, they realized they were wrong, but they never said, well, you're right. We're going to fall down. You've got to be God. Here we are, man. You're, you're the boss. They never repented at the truth that he gave them. How sad is that? How sad is that? Remember, a few weeks ago, we had the Pharisees come to Christ. And they approach him on, you know, by what authority do you do the things that you do? Well, he kind of answered them scornfully back about John the Baptist's baptism. And yet they realized he was right and they were wrong because they wouldn't give him the answer on, you know, where was John the Baptist's baptism was from. Because they knew and all the people knew that John the Baptist was a man of God, yet they wouldn't confess the fact that John was, you know, John the Baptist's baptism was from God. And then since, since John approved of Jesus, so they realized that Jesus was right and they were wrong. And yet they refused to what? They refused to repent. Next, instead of repenting, they send their disciples, these Pharisees. And they attack Jesus with the question of, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? You know, they come with the Herodians and they're trying to trap him and, you know, they're trying to get at him. So that's another sign that the Pharisees didn't repent because if they would have repented, they would have never said they're just sent their disciples to him to attack him. So they show us that Pharisees, again, they doubly won't repent. Now, the disciples of the Pharisees come and they test him. Jesus gives them a forearm to the face and says, you're wrong. Look, hey, give to God what's God and give to Caesars what's Caesars. And they, their mouths are shut too. And they just leave. And yet, what did they not do either? They did not repent either. They realized they were wrong. But instead of repenting, they ran away. We talked about that. Now we see the Sadducees come and test him concerning the resurrection, which they didn't even believe in. Jesus shows them in their own literal scriptures that they're literally wrong. Their mouths are shut so that they don't even ever come to him again and question him ever again. Why you wouldn't come to somebody and question them again is because you were proved so wrong and you were made such a fool of in front of the people that you're like, we don't want, that we don't want the bad publicity. The people are going to stop coming and following us because they're just going to hear him keep proving us wrong. We can't, let's, let's get out of here. He's right, we're wrong. And yet, what do we see again? They refuse to repent. Wow, that is worse than terrible. That's not just terrible, that's worse than terrible. And these are just a few of the instances we see the same thing happen to Jesus. Many times people came, many times people came up to attack him, and many times he shut their mouths. And yet... Even though he proves them wrong, they realize they're wrong, realize he's right, they continue to not repent, and they walk in their error for good. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Without repentance, there's no salvation, and there's no relationship with God. So, for us today, where are we at today with God he wants to walk with us. But do we really want to walk with Him? Do you really put your trust in Him and put your whole life in His hands every day? And are you really following His ways? Do you, have you made a choice to follow Him and say no to sin? I'm going to abstain from sin of this world. And are you communing with Him on a daily basis? Do you talk to Him? Do you listen to Him? Do you stay away from the things which He hates? And do you work at doing the things which He loves? Have you realized, as our common verbiage was in the last couple weeks here, have you realized that you are wrong? That you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. And guess what? God is right. 
We're wrong. God's right. He's the Savior. We're the sinner. And because of this, you've turned to Him with all your heart. You've repented or surrendered your life to Him with all your ways. If you have, then your life will be different in holy ways. You will act, talk, live differently in the holy ways that God says that you're supposed to live. If you have truly repented and turned to Jesus, then you will live your life like you love Him and God Almighty. If this is you, and you could say, I love God because my actions of my life show that I love God, not just my words. I love God because I don't just say it, but I do the things which He tells me to do. I'll close to you with Romans 12, 1-3. Paul's writing, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Again, we don't serve God because we want to be saved. We serve God because we love Him, because we are saved. Okay, And he goes on to say, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is, what, what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's to you if you are His, if you've repented. Put your life in His hands and you live a repentant life daily. God, you're right and I'm wrong and I'm a sinner, but I, boy, I need you. Lord, I need you and I love you. How can I serve you today? What can I do for you today, Lord? I just want to walk with you in trust and faith. But now, if you believe in Jesus, but you don't live your life like you love Him and God Almighty, and you don't act, talk, live differently in, a whole, in the holy ways that God says to live, then today I want to tell you that the Bible says that you're not right with God. Because to back up what I said about living for God like you love Him, or not living for God like you or, or not living for God, or, or living for God like you don't love Him. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If we're saved, we're walking like we're saved. If we're saved, we're living our lives like we love God. But if you're not living your life like you love God and like you love Christ, then chances are the Bible says that you're not saved. But if you would say that this is you, I would close to you with these words. You're wrong, God is right, and you need Jesus. You need Jesus Christ, and you need Him now. So what should you do? Well, start turning to Him. Start putting your trust in Him. Start looking to His Word and doing the things that He told you to do and making a choice to live for Him instead of yourself. And if you realize that you're wrong and God's right, should you continue on the path that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Pharisees' disciples were on? Because, I mean, they all realized they were wrong and he was right. But what did they not do? They lacked the key ingredient to relationship. They lacked repentance. They never turned to him, even though they realized he was right. So don't be like them. Listen to the words of John the Baptist and Christ as a close to you. John the Baptist in Matthew 3, 2 and Matthew 3, 8, verse, or chapter, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he tells some other religious leaders later when he sees them coming out to the baptism, and he says, Bear fruits worthy of repentance. Repent, and live like you love God with the actions of your life. And Christ tells us again in Matthew 4.17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if you don't live like you love Him, and you live for yourself, even though you may believe in Him, then repent. He's right. You're wrong. We're all wrong. God's the only one that's right. He's got the answers. Please, turn to Him with all your heart today and surrender to Him. 
and live for him with your actions and not just your words. Fall down on your face. Prostrate yourself before the Lord, the King of heaven and earth. And humble yourself before it's too late. Don't just realize that he's right and you're wrong and keep walking on like the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the disciples of the Pharisees and the lawyers and the scribes. Admit that you're wrong and he's right and surrender and stop fighting. Stop walking against him. Stop kicking against the goads as Jesus Christ told Paul on the road to Damascus when he revealed himself to him. And turn to him now. For it's not too late for you. If God didn't love you, even though you were in sin and you didn't live for him, then he wouldn't have you listening to this message right now, offering you a chance to turn and repent right now. God loves you. My words to you in closing are, will you decide today to love him back? Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message. Lord, thank you so much for... Lord, your words, and thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for your answers. Lord, for, Lord Jesus, you answered in some remarkable ways. Your answers were just amazing. Lord, they were just perfect. Lord, thank you so much, Lord, that we can see all throughout Scripture, you are perfectly right every time. And we are horribly wrong every time. Lord, thank you, though, that even though you're right and we're wrong, you still love us. And you still want to save us. What love is that? You gave the greatest sacrifice, giving your life for us. But now you offer the gift of forgiveness and repentance. And you offer it to all people. You long for people to come to you. I pray, Lord God, any that are listening to this message or that will ever listen to this message, Lord, in the future, I pray that as they hear these words, Lord God, they would turn to you with all their hearts, admitting they're wrong and you're right. But not just knowing it, falling down in repentance and turning to you and starting a relationship with you. Lord, please touch people's hearts with what I said today and change their hearts and bring them to Christ and save them. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, dear God. I ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Praise God, everyone. It's Pastor Ed here. and Thank you so much for listening to the message. It's my prayer that you were encouraged and challenged with what you heard today to be a doer of God's word and not a hearer only. Because your life will soon be passed and only what you've done for Jesus Christ will last. If you live in the Dallas, Texas area, we want to invite you to come to our little house church here in McKinney, Texas. Sunday mornings, our service is at 1015 and the directions can be found on our website. Also, if you have any prayer requests or questions or maybe you believe God has called you to support this church financially, please go to gospelsavingchurch.com and click on the appropriate links. I would love to hear from you personally. God loves you very much. Please love him back by the way you live your life. God bless you and have a wonderful day.